Let's open our Bibles this morning first to 1 Corinthians 15. Then we'll go to the Gospel of Mark. 1 Corinthians 15. Now each of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, bring to bear upon the resurrection story their own own personal view of it and and the unique elements and and features that each brings and really nothing is missing from from the accounts. When we put them all together, we get everything that the the, uh, Lord wanted us to have. There is, however, in the midst of uh, the resurrection story, there's something missing. Now I say, I just said everything is there that we need to have, right? But not everything is there that I want to have. There is something I'm convinced that is missing that in our world today we would like to see in the resurrection story. And we want to, we want to hear what happened, right? We don't want to hear that, that the tomb was just empty, which is great and glorious. But, but what happened in that tomb when it was just Jesus and he was dead? And, and what did the Lord do in the midst of that? And what was it like for Jesus to open his eyes and get out of those burial cloths and, and the stone was rolled away? We don't have that issue. We don't have that explanation of it. Now, why don't we have it? Well, apparently, we don't need it. You know, that, that's kind of my answer. If we don't have it, we don't need it. Okay? Uh, now, the flip side of that is there, well, who saw creation? Uh, well, the Lord saw creation. So sometimes we just have to say, well, that's good enough for me. The Lord saw it. The Lord saw the resurrection. In fact, the Lord caused the resurrection to happen. So before we dig into the gospel and read about the resurrection, we're going to read about 20 years later from the book of 1 Corinthians, that is Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. Now understand, this is a pretty rough place, uh, Corinth. They come right out of paganism, some of the most rank paganism in the first century. Uh, if you recall, a sailor was, was disappointed if he didn't have to get a chance to put in at Corinth on his uh, tour of duty while he was on the ship, because that's where all the fun was for sailors. Okay, They had this temple on top of the hill where you could go up and worship with a temple prostitute. I mean, it was just a nasty place. So the gospel comes to this place, and lives are changed, and so you have these people who were uh, last week, last month, uh, six months ago, were in the midst of paganism, and now their lives have been changed, and they're trying to work out what does this mean? How does Christianity look like? What's it supposed to look like in the midst of all this? Well, Paul writes to them in, in uh, chapter 15. Now, he's, he's, he's kind of gone question and answer, question and answer all through the book. And now he comes to chapter 15, and, and let me read a little bit for you. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. He says, I'm going to tell you what I've already told you, because apparently uh, you weren't listening to some of it. By This is the gospel, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. This is, remember, this is some 20 years later. But some have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep, that means they have passed away. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were one untimely born, he appeared to me. Remember Paul is saying, remember he appeared to me on the road to Damascus. I have testified to this. It's, it's uh, written down for us in the book of Acts where he was on the way to get himself some more Christians to put in prison. And the Lord comes and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he's struck blind for three days and his life is completely changed, even to the degree that the Lord gave him a new name. Flip over to verse 12. And Paul says, Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? This is, a, this is a tough one for Paul. He's kind of scratching his head going, guys, I, I, I told you this and I preached it to you and you have seen the power of the risen Christ demonstrated in the miraculous things, but some of you don't believe in the resurrection from the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that he raised the Christ in whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now, if Christ didn't come out of the tomb, isn't there something better you could do today? Isn't there something better? I mean, there's, there's golf and uh, there's, uh, you get first in line at a restaurant or somewhere. I mean, there's plenty of other things you could be doing today. But I will assume you are here because you believe that the tomb was empty or you kind of believe that the tomb was empty. That you know this is Easter and you know I should be in church. And, and yes, I, I kind of believe that, but really I'm not sold 100% on that. Well, let's now turn over to Mark chapter 15. See, the resurrection is not simply a component of the gospel, but it is the component of the gospel. It is the singular event in all of history that changes the world. You, you, you might say, well, there have been some pretty big events, Rand, that have changed the world. Uh, nobody's come out of the tomb before. Nobody's come out of the tomb since. Okay? Now, when we come to the gospel of Mark, Mark is all about the facts. Mark gives it to us. I'm sorry, Mark 16. Did I say? No, the end of 15. Don't worry. I know what I'm I'm doing, honestly, I do. Okay, the end, the very end of Mark 15. Mark gives us the facts. It's almost like he bullet points the gospel story for us. Matthew, Luke, they give it to us in narrative. Mark's just the facts, please. Just give me the facts. And that's what he does. And here are the facts about the main event in all of history, the resurrection. Verse 47 of chapter 15. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were looking on to see where he was laid. So they paid attention, paid close attention to where they laid Jesus. And when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices that they may come and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. 
And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he said to you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Here's the greatest moment in, in all of history. And these three ladies are eyewitnesses to, to the results of it, eyewitnesses to the, the one who declares it, the angel. And, and they're so afraid that they can't even talk about it. They can't even go and talk to anybody about it. You see, the resurrection is the event. I mean, we, we, the symbol of Christianity is, is the cross. But without the resurrection, the cross means very little. In fact, the cross has no bearing upon us if the tomb is not empty. No resurrection, no salvation. The church does not, nor has it ever met on Friday. As important as that cross is, we've always met on Sunday. The church meets on Sunday because that is the day of resurrection. That is the day of the descending of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the church has always understood the priority of the resurrection. And again, if Christ didn't come out of the grave, none of us are coming out as well. None of us. So the resurrection of Christ and of believers is really unique to Christianity. There is no such promise in Islam. Now, those gentlemen who blew themselves up in the airport and the subway in Brussels this week, they were expecting this great um, uh, trip to paradise. Now, remember, dying in a, a sanctioned jihad is the only way that guarantees a Muslim to get to heaven, guarantees them to get to heaven. And there they are, and they blow themselves up, and what's the next thing they see? It's not the paradise that they thought they were going to see. It is judgment upon them. Judgment. There is no promise of resurrection in other religions. There's a promise of reincarnation in some and other things, but no resurrection. No, there's the body in the grave. That body comes out of the grave. It is unique to Christianity, this physical promise of physical resurrection to a form that will be perfect and joyful and for all eternity fit for the praise of our Heavenly Father. So here in Mark, let's look at this passage in particular. We see the first thing that's on their minds is they're on their way to the grave and they bought spices. Now understand that previously at, at Jesus' burial, Joseph of Arimathea gave him this tomb, and he kind of prepared the body for burial. It was a quick preparation because it was the Sabbath. Sabbath was coming and it had to be done, uh, so they just put some on, them, on, on him and put him in the tomb. The ladies are coming to finish the work of preparing the body for burial. Okay? So what does that tell you straight off? They're looking for a dead person. They're looking for the man that they saw on the cross. They saw the flesh torn from his back. They saw the crown of thorns. They heard the, the, the people um, 
you know, scream at him and spit at him and call him all kinds of vile names. They saw the spear go into his side. They heard him say, Father, into, my, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. He gave up his life. They saw all that. He was dead. And they come to finish the work of preparing the body, the dead body, at the tomb. Now, again, Mark's style is very factual. It is very straightforward. Um, here are the ladies coming. They brought the spices that they might anoint him. It was very early, probably dark when they left the house. They come to the tomb just as the sun had risen, and they were concerned about what? Well, you know, we brought the spices, but how are we going to get in there? How are we going to get into the tomb? You see, on Saturday, uh, well, when they put him in, the stone was rolled in, and then the Romans come and they put a seal on this rock. And now the seal is half on the rock and half on the rock face. And it's a giant wax seal that, uh, it's like a seal on an envelope. You can tell if the seal has been broken and someone has read your mail. The same thing was here. They wanted to make sure nobody opened that tomb, so they put this Roman seal on it, big wax, uh, glob of wax with a seal that demonstrated whether it had been opened or not. Well, they get there thinking, how are we going to open this tomb? And when they show up, the tomb is already open. Now, did they think for an instant, do you think, Maybe that stuff about Jesus' resurrection was true. Do you think? I mean, the stone has been rolled away. Maybe it's true. No, they didn't think that. <laughs> Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, and although it was extremely large. When we see those words, looking up, it wasn't as if the tomb was up there and they had to look up the hill. When you're dejected and everything that you have hoped for has seemingly come to an end, and here you are going to the grave to anoint a body that, that you didn't think this person was going to die in this way, you're dejected and your head is down and you're walking, and all of a sudden they look up and here it is what they see. They see this man, and it's, it's an angel, and um, you know angels are typically, no, not typically, they are exclusively male and they are named only a few times throughout Scripture. But angels show up at moments of redemption. In redemptive history, throughout Scripture, we see that angels show up. Uh, Garden of Eden, um, plenty of places in the Old Testament. Um, plenty, I, I say that plenty of places, I'm suddenly blanking on all where they all are. Um, but remember, the one point in uh, 2 Kings uh, 19, I think it is, when Jerusalem is surrounded by Assyrians... And it looks like it's all done, and, and they're going to be destroyed. An angel of the Lord comes in the middle of the night and kills 185,000 Assyrians. One angel. And the Jerusalem wakes up the next day, and there they are. The Assyrians are all dead. So they come in these moments of, of salvation to save the people, to save God's covenant people. So you can imagine why the ladies were kind of frightened. At this, they were steeped in this knowledge of when the angels show up, and especially that Second King story, uh, wiping out all of these people. And it says that they were amazed. That they were amazed. Back a couple chapters, the word is rendered distressed. Distressed. Usually, when we see an angel show up, the next thing or the first thing an angel says is "get up," because people throw themselves down in front of angels. Well, these people were distressed. They were amazed. The word means 
um, frightened almost to the point of paralyzation. Frightened almost to the point of paralyzation. Wow. Here is an angel of the Lord that comes and presents a message, a message of great news when the ladies were expecting to find a dead body. Now, there were some negative results from what happened here. Look at verse 8. And they went out and fled. That doesn't mean that they left and went home. It means they ran away. They were so frightened. Remember, they were so frightened before that they turned and they ran away. They didn't want to be around anymore. They fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Uh, go back to verse, hmm, verse 6. Okay, here they are. They're terrified. They're amazed. And he says to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. He knew exactly who they were looking for, who has been crucified. Yes, that's right. We brought spices to anoint his body. Where is he? He's not here. He's not here. He's risen. He is, behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go. Now here, you have an angel giving you a direct order. Go tell his disciples and Peter. He is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he said to you. And they went out and told the entire city that the tomb was empty and that they had seen an angel, right? They didn't say that at all, no. Trembling and astonishment had gripped them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now if you go back to the first chapter of Mark, there's a healing of a leper. And Jesus touches the leper with this move, with this great compassion. He touches him and heals him. And the guy, is, his leprosy is just gone from his body. And Jesus says, don't go tell anybody. And what does the leper do? He goes and tells everybody. Because he can't keep it in. This is such great news. And here, you have these three ladies who have seen an angel, who have come to anoint a body that they know is dead, but that body is gone, and the angel says, he's not here, he's risen. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? They have, they're the first witnesses to this, the greatest miracle of all time, and what do they do? They clam up. Now Mark is answering the question for us, why didn't all Jerusalem know about the resurrection? I mean, why didn't they all hear it? I mean, you would think that three, uh, 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 how do I even say it? Three crazed women running down the street saying, the tomb is empty and we've seen the angel and Christ is risen. That would gain, you know, gain some news. But there's none of that. Now, Matthew tells us later that they did go and tell the disciples and the disciples head to the tomb. But they were so afraid they couldn't tell anybody. They couldn't tell anybody. Now, just to think, if you were going to write a gospel 20 years later, would, would you want it, the church to be built on three ladies who were afraid to tell anybody about what they saw? They were the first witnesses. They were the first ones to see that the tomb was empty. And the angel is the first one to declare those great words, he is not here, he is risen. No one saw him, the angel, except these three ladies. And they were afraid and ran away. 
No one was ever able to speak to that angel again and quiz him and say, were you actually in the tomb when it happened? Did you see what happened? There's none of that. Mark wants us not to focus on the faith of the disciples because the disciples really at this point have such little faith. He doesn't want to focus on the faith of these women because they may have had some more, but they were looking for a dead body. Mark wants us to focus entirely on the power of God that is manifest to us in this empty tomb. That's the miracle, that the tomb is empty. And remember, the stone wasn't rolled away so he could get out. The stone was rolled away so we could get in, so that we could see in and that it was gone. He was gone. Now, I think it is correct to assume this morning that there are probably a few of us here who are saying, you're saying to yourself, uh, yeah, Rand, I just... But I just have a hard time with this. I have a hard time with this, this resurrection, this believing that the tomb is actually empty. Yes, I've heard it all my life, but it's never really, it's never really set with me. I mean, yeah, I, I, I give it, you might admit to yourself, I give it lip service, but I really don't believe it. I really don't believe it. Well, the good news for those of you who are like that is that God is very patient. God is very patient with those who honestly seek answers to their questions. You, would not, you should not be amazed if I were to ask everyone who at one time or another uh, doubted, had questions, or did not believe the resurrection of Christ. You might find people in every pew here stand. But God is patient with us. God works with us, and he brings us along. Um, you know, he's, he, if you're an honest doubter and an honest seeker, the Lord is patient with you. Remember Thomas, who was, a, who was one of the apostles. He said, I'm not going to believe that Christ came out of the grave until what? I can see the marks. I can put my hand in his side. And Jesus shows up in that sealed room, and there he is. And says, Thomas, you want to you put your fingers here? He says, no. Remember that James, the brother of Jesus, was raised in that house all of his life with Jesus. What do you think it had been like to be Jesus' little brother? That had been tough, okay? Mary looking at him, saying, why can't you be like Jesus? Man, that's a, that's a burden to bear, okay? But they all, in fact, all of Jesus' family, except Mary, had doubts about who he was. And not until after his resurrection, Jesus actually pays a special visit to James. And James goes on to play in a very important role in the startup of the church, especially in Jerusalem. When the apostles first hear the news, you're kidding me right? You're kidding me. They don't believe. But they all had honest doubts about these things. But how patient was God with them? Would you remember that on that day that they were all totally discouraged? They were ready to throw in the towel of life. They'd spent three years devoted to this guy, and there he was dead. And Christ comes into that room, the risen Christ, the risen Christ. So let me suggest to you that if you're an honest doubter, not somebody who immediately shrugs it off and says, all oh, that resurrection stuff is for the birds. I'm not even going to listen to that. I'm not even going to look for the proofs of, those, of that. If you're somebody who's honest and, and seeks and will ask questions and, and receive answers, then the Lord is patient. But you have to look for answers in the right place. Now, in the first century, the greatest Roman historian his name was Tacitus. The greatest Jewish historian who was kind of co-opted by the Romans was Josephus. Both of them mention the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as an historic fact. Both of them mention 
the resurrection sightings of Jesus as historic facts. Neither one was a believer, but they recorded these events as actual historical events. The honest doubter, the one who does not immediately dismiss it all, what he or she cannot instantly explain, looks for answers in the right places. There's a story of a, a drunken man, and there he is on, on the corner underneath a street light, and he's down on his hands and knees. And he's searching around the ground, and a good Samaritan comes along and says, man, what, what, what are you looking for? He says, I lost my wallet. And the guy says, want me to help you look for it? Yeah. So there are two guys down on the corner on their hands and knees looking for a wallet. They're looking in the drain. They're looking everywhere. And, and the good Samaritan looks at this guy and says, is this where you lost your wallet? And the drunk says, no, I lost my wallet three blocks east. And the guy says, why aren't we looking over there? He says, well, there's no street light over there. <laughs> it's wonderful to search for answers. But you have to do it in a place that you can find them. In a place you can find them. People who search in the wrong places will only find the wrong answers. There's a mausoleum that contains a crystal coffin. And for many years, millions, millions have walked by that coffin. I was one of them. I walked by Lenin's tomb. I went in. I saw the coffin. As, as somebody who uh, at one time worked in the funeral business, it's amazing to see that a guy who died that long ago is still preserved. And they, they go and retouch him on a regular basis so that he looks like he just died yesterday. Looks like he just died yesterday. There's an inscription in there that reads, He was the greatest leader of all people, of all kind. He was the Lord of the new humanity. He was the Savior of the world. Now, it's interesting that the inscription is all written how? In the past, past tense. Lenin was. Lenin was. What a contrast to Jesus Christ who says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. There's nothing past tense about Jesus and his promises or about his resurrection. Was his resurrection a fact in the past? Yes. Do the results still continue today? Yes. Can you go find an empty tomb? Well, there are places they think the tomb is, but the key thing is his body is not there. His body is not there. Lenin is dead, Stalin is dead, Muhammad is dead. Everybody else who thought they had the answers to questions in life, they're dead. The angel said to those who came to the tomb, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, yes, we have perfect hindsight looking back. And why didn't these women know? Why didn't they believe? Why didn't they see? Why didn't they go and tell everybody? Some things we just won't know. But the things that we do know, that that tomb's empty. The tomb is empty because before the creation of the world, it was decided that Jesus Christ would bear our sins. That he would leave your right hand and come into this world and take on the form of a man and give his life on a cross. And then on the third day you would raise him from the dead. That he would return and you would exalt him above every other name on earth. And at one point in the future somewhere when it is your perfect will. Heavenly Father you'll send him back to collect his church.
we will be raised with bodies that are fit for all eternity. Until that day, Lord, fix in our minds and our hearts these truths of Christ's resurrection. And for those, Lord, who are, who are honest about their doubts, honest about seeking answers to these things, move them along. Work in their hearts that their eyes might be open to the truth of Christ and to the truth that that tomb is empty. He is not here. He has risen. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.